What is it you wanted me to reconcile myself to? I was born here almost 60 years ago. I'm not going to live another 60 years. You've always told me it takes time. It's taken my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time, my brother's and my sister's time, my nieces and my nephew's time. How much time do you want for your progress? A cop is a cop. Well, cops no. are white. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, and he, may be, he may be a very nice man. But I haven't got the time to figure that out. You know, all I know is he's got a uniform and a gun. You know, I had to relate to him that way. You know, <laughs> that's the only way to relate to him at all. Because one of us is going to, you know, one of us may have to die. One of us, you know, in New York, there's a, a big campaign going on to humanize the um, policeman. And they have post uh, billboards upstate. And they have a picture of a big cop bending over this little blonde girl. Mm -hmm. and, and the signs say, and some people call him pig. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to buy a billboard. I told a friend of mine, I want to buy a billboard and show this big cop and this 14-year-old kid with 30 bullets in him and saying some people call him peacemaker. What's up, everyone? This is Jesse James, and welcome to episode two of James Baldwin's America. Before I comment on the clips that you just heard, I want to take a second and thank everybody for listening to episode one. The episode was listened to in 16 different states and 13 different countries, and I am completely overwhelmed by the outpouring of support that I've received, both from people I know and people I am now meeting through this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated, and I hope to keep producing better and better content over time, and hopefully this can be an outlet for people to come to to come together and hear ideas and hear voices that they might not always have a chance to hear that maybe can start to change hearts and minds. With that being said, I um, want to talk about the first clip that you guys heard. Baldwin from 1984 talking about progress and how much time it takes for progress in America. And I don't know, maybe in the last week, maybe we've witnessed progress. I'm not entirely sure. What I do know is in the case of George Floyd, a police officer that was originally charged with third degree murder had his charges upped to second degree murder and three other police officers that were originally not charged with anything were also charged, arrested and charged with uh, aiding and abetting second-degree murder. But then only a day or two after that, we see video coming out of Buffalo of a 75-year-old white man shoved to the ground by a couple of police officers. Two of those officers were suspended. I am 57 more resigned in protest as a sign of respect for the two that um, were fired, not suspended. So it makes me wonder, what exactly is progress? Are, are we making any sort of progress as George Floyd has now been laid to rest? There are still protests going on around the country. How long are those protests going to maintain their strength and their vigor? Or are they just going to peter out over the next couple of days or a week? And is it going to take somebody else to die 
for protests to fire themselves back up? Or can this be something that's sustainable and carry through the entire summer, carry it through to the elections in November? I'm just not sure. But what I'd like to do now is take a minute and talk about what progress may or may not look like in this country. We need to ask, our, ask ourselves, what is progress? What does it look like? Progress needs to be a multi-front attack. American values, they need to make a fundamental shift. We can no longer value corporations and goods over human life. Capitalism in this country was built on the backs of slaves. That's an inarguable fact. The narrative of storytelling in this country needs to change. And that is why studying history and learning from it is so important. Slavery wasn't just a Southern institution. Although slavery was outlawed in the North, businesses in the North still profited from slavery, whether it was insurance companies insuring a plantation owner's slaves or companies that used the raw materials from the South to create materials that were sold around the world. We need to stop teaching our children incorrect information, not only about slavery, but about our entire history. It just so happens to be a large part of our history and the main causes of our problems today in this country stem from slavery. We can't sugarcoat information to our children. Having worked with young children myself, trust me when I tell you, they can take on much, much more than adults think they can. They're much stronger minded. They have much more open minds and open hearts than most adults I know. So we need to be honest with them about slavery. It wasn't pretty, so we shouldn't try and make it less than what it was. It was absolutely horrible. It was human beings enslaving other human beings. It was white people ripping black folks from Africa, from their families, taking them halfway around the world and putting them into forced labor for no money. It was men and women being branded by their slave owners. It was children being taken away from their mothers and fathers and sold to other plantations. It was females being raped by their owners with no regard for any repercussions of what might happen, even if the woman would get pregnant. That just meant more labor workers for the plantation owner. It was black men could be accused of anything by anyone and nothing would be done. It was an ugly time in our country's history. To put it any other way is dishonoring those folks that lived their entire lives in bondage. 
I chuckle to myself over the last couple of weeks whenever I have heard somebody talk about, you know, I fully support the protests. But then as soon as they finish saying that, they say that they just don't agree with the rioting. They just don't agree with the looting. They support the cause, but they just wish there was another way that black folks could express their anger and their frustration with everything. And it's amusing because those people forget, one, the country that they live in, and two, how this country was formed and how violent the history of this country is. The Boston Tea Party. Colonialists dressed up as Native Americans and threw goods into the Boston Harbor that was destroying products, that was destroying goods, the same way as the Target Minneapolis was rioted or looted. There's a great piece I'm going to play at the end of this episode that talks about the connection that Black folks have in their community and why they're so frustrated and why they take to what some people call rioting and looting and why some of them have no regard for any sort of action like that because in short, the property that they're damaging, the merchandise that they're taking for themselves, it's not theirs in the first place. So the police society have already broken a social contract with black communities to serve and protect them. So this is their way of showing you that when they're treated less than, they'll show you what they can do in response. And the thing is, and it's another thing that has been brought up so often over the last couple of weeks. Black folks aren't asking for anything more than any other average person in this country has. They want equality. They want equity. They want justice. They don't want more than what the average American has. They just want the chance to have the same opportunities, the chance at the same jobs, the chance at the same promotions, the chance at the same education, the chance to live in the same neighborhoods that are considered safe. Black folks want safety as much as any other person in this country. Luckily for all non-Black folks, the thing that they don't want is revenge. Because honestly, to be very truthful about it, they deserve revenge. When you are put into bondage for over 200 years, then you are subjugated to be less than for another 90 years. And then you finally get integration, but you're still kept down as a second class citizen. So you're in the country for the same amount of time as white folks have been here 
but you get none of what white folks have been able to get because they put you in a position where you are the ones that have done all the hard labor and they profited from it. Black folks absolutely deserve revenge, but I have not heard one black person, either people I know, people I've seen on TV, or people I've um, seen or read on social media. Not one person has said anything about revenge. They just want equality. Going back to the second clip that I played to start the show, it was, was a conversation between Nikki Giovanni and Baldwin uh, talking about police in this country. If you don't know, black folks and the police and the suppression and killing of black folks by police in this country, it's not new. It's not something that began five years ago. It's not something that began almost 30 years ago when Rodney King was beaten in 1992 by the LAPD. This goes back to slavery and police units being formed to chase and corral, and in some cases kill runaway slaves. So then the idea, we get back to progress. And believe me, I have watched so much cable news in the past two weeks, and I have read so many interesting articles and spent time on social media, but I haven't seen or heard anyone make the point that I'd like to make right now. Because any progress that's made in this country, whether it's in politics or economics or social reform, it doesn't really solve any problems. And nobody wants to admit it because they think if we can get police reform, things will be better. Or if maybe politicians listened to minorities more, things would be better. And it's, it's really, it's not true. Our political system, capitalism, or even police brutality are just the symptoms of the real sickness in this country. White supremacy. White supremacy isn't a today or even yesterday problem. White supremacy is a steroid that turned this country from an infant to a tyrannical world power with the attitude of a toddler that only valued white males for a majority of its history. Even worse than a drug, white supremacy has become ingrained into this country's DNA. Until white folks and Black folks already know this, so I'm not speaking to them here. This is for any white person that's listening to this podcast. White folks are the ones that need to step up and solve white supremacy. When you hear racism is a problem or race in this country, black folks have been doing their part. They've been telling us. They've been showing us. They've been crying out to us of what the problems in this country are. We as white folks have not been listening. 
And until we start to listen, until we start to acknowledge, until we decide enough is enough, change needs to happen now, only then can white supremacy in this country be addressed. White supremacy, it's who we are as a country. It's who we teach our children to become, whether we do it consciously or subconsciously. It's what we do. Baldwin spoke in the fire next time of the black terror in response to white supremacy. And I just want to take a couple minutes right now and read to you this section. And for anybody that wants to either follow along or read after I've um, read this small part, it's on page 25 in the fire next time. Negroes in this country and Negroes do not, strictly or legally speaking, exist in any other, are taught really to despise themselves from the moment their eyes open on the world. This world is white and they are black. White people hold the power, which means that they are superior to blacks. Intrinsically, that is, God decreed it so. And the world has an innumerable ways of making the difference known and felt and feared. Long before the Negro child perceives this difference, and even longer before he understands it, he has begun to react to it. He has begun to be controlled by it. Every effort made by the child's elders to prepare him for a fate from which they cannot protect him causes him secretly, in terror, to begin to await, without knowing that he is doing so, his mysterious and inexorable punishment. He must be good, not only in order to please his parents, and not only to avoid being punished by them. Behind their authority stands another nameless and impersonal, infinitely harder to please, and bottomlessly cruel. And this filters into the child's consciousness through his parents. Tone of voice, as he is being exhorted, punished, or loved, in the sudden, uncontrollable note of fear heard in his mother's or father's voice when he is strayed beyond some particular boundary. He does not know what the boundary is, and he can get no explanation of it, which is frightening enough, but the fear he hears in the voices of his elders is more frightening still. The fear that I heard in my father's voice, for example, when, I, when he realized that I really believed I could do anything a white boy could do and had every intention of proving it was not at all like the fear I heard when one of us was ill or had fallen down the stairs or strayed too far from the house. It was another fear, a fear that the child in challenging the white world's assumptions was putting himself in the path of destruction. A child cannot, thank heaven, know how vast and how merciless is the nature of power with what unbelievable cruelty people treat each other. He reacts to the fear in his parents' voices because his parents hold up the world for him and he has no protection without them. I defended myself, as I imagined, against the fear my father made me feel by remembering that he was very old-fashioned. Also, I prided myself on the fact that I already knew how to outwit him. 
to defend oneself against a fear is simply to ensure that one will one day be conquered by it. Fears must be faced. As for one's wits, it is just not true that one can live by them. Not that is if one wishes really to live. That passage shows the fundamental differences in this country between black and white families. White families never even think about their place in the country because it's been indoctrinated into them that they are superior. Yet black individuals are expected from the youngest of ages to play their part and not be anything more. I never growing up thought about myself and my whiteness. I just thought of myself as a person. Yet when I was teaching at UW-Madison and I would talk to my students, students of color, particularly the black students, being black was the first thing they thought of every morning when they got up. It was with them every moment of the day that they stepped outside of their apartment or their homes. And it was the last thing that they thought of every night before they fell asleep was being black in a country that didn't value them as full citizens, as full people, as full humans. You don't kill people when you value their lives. You don't kill people when you see them as an equal to you. You don't kill people when you understand that they have as much right to be where they are as you do, and they have as much value to contribute to this world that you do. And when police officers are taught in their training that they may need to take lives and they need to reconcile with that, that is the time that it kicks in for them that they need to devalue other people's lives in order to protect their own. So it's really easy for them to pull up on a 12-year-old Tamir Rice playing in a park and shoot him less than one second after opening their door when all they see is somebody that has a black face and a gun. It's what makes it easy for them to have three police officers, not one, not two, three police officers kneel on George Floyd for almost nine minutes. And even when he's begging, not asking, begging for his life, they ignore him because that's the only way that they felt they could do their jobs. They need to dehumanize somebody else in order for them to do their jobs. And I get it. The argument is, hey, there's only a few bad apples. It's not systemic. There's just a few officers here and there. The problem is, we have seen over the last decade, time after time after time, week after week, clips of black men, black women being shot, being restrained until they can't breathe. Over and over, 
not only were those quote-unquote bad apples the ones responsible for those deaths, but the officers with them, the supposed good apples, they didn't do anything to stop the bad apples. So guess what? You're bad by association. So that just includes a whole bunch of more apples that make the whole group bad. Is every cop bad? No, I don't believe that. And I don't think many people do believe that all cops are bad. But there are enough bad cops that things need to be addressed. There needs to be change. We need progress from what we are currently experiencing in this country with how police forces function and operate within communities, especially communities of color. I just want to give a quick plug before I give you my final thoughts for the week. You can follow and give the show a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash James Baldwin's America or on Twitter at James underscore Baldwin's. You can email the show with your thoughts or questions at Baldwin's, B-A-L-D-W-I-N-S dot America at gmail.com. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. And please leave a five-star rating. Now, one person I didn't talk about on this week's episode was a president of the United States. And I'm not going to name him specifically because, one, you all know who he is. And, two, when you speak the devil's name, you give the devil power and I refuse to give the devil power. He came out yesterday and said that he is going to start campaign rallying again next week, and his first appearance will be in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Juneteenth. Um, For those that don't know, as much as I want to teach and educate you about Baldwin, White folks, you need to do your own work. So I'm not going to say much about Juneteenth or about the importance of Tulsa, Oklahoma and what happened almost 100 years ago in the Tulsa massacre. There's your homework assignment for the week. But for the president of the United States, who many have questioned, is he a racist? Is he not? Is he a bigot or whatever he may be? For him to start his campaign rally in that city on that day, it's a complete slap in the face to every black American and they know it. And he knows it. Most importantly, he knows what he's doing as much as people may like to make fun of his intellect. He knows exactly what he's doing. And it really is just a big joke to him. So with that being said, my last thought is, fuck you, Donald Trump. The last thing I want to play for you this week is a video from Kimberly Jones, who did a tremendous job talking about the relationship between black folks and the social contract contract between black folks and the community and the police. 
So I will leave you to listen to that. And thank you again for listening. I will talk to you next week. Until then, I'm Jesse James. Peace. So I've, I've been saying a lot of things, talking of the people making commentary. Um, interestingly enough, the ones I've noticed that have been making the commentary are wealthy black people making the commentary about we should not be... Um, rioting, we should not be looting, we should not be tearing up our own communities. And then there's been an argument of the other side of we should be hitting them in the pocket. We should be focusing on the blackout days where we don't spend money. Um, but, you know, I feel like we should do both. And I feel like I support both. And I'll tell you why I support both. I support both because there, when you have a civil unrest like this, there are three type of people in the streets. There are the protesters, there are the rioters, and there are the looters. The protesters are there because they actually care about what is happening in the community. They want to raise their voices and they are there strictly to protest. You have the rioters who are angry, who are anarchists, who really just want to shit up, and that's what they're going to do regardless. And then you have the looters. And the looters almost exclusively are just there to do that, to loot. Now, people are like, well, what did you gain? Well, what did you get from looting? I think that as long as we're focusing on the what, we're not focusing on the why. And that's my issue with that. As long as we're focusing on what they're doing, we're not focusing on why they're doing. And some people are like, well, those aren't people who are legitimately angry about what's happening. Those are people who just want to get stuff. Okay, well, then... Let's go with that. Let's say that's what it is. Let's ask ourselves why in this country in 2020, the financial gap between poor blacks and the rest of the world is at such a distance that people feel like their only hope and only opportunity to get some of the things that we flaunt and flash in front of them all the time is to walk through a broken glass window and get it. That they are so hopeless that getting that necklace, getting that TV, getting that change, getting that bed, getting that phone, whatever it is that they're going to get is that in in that moment when the riots happen and if they present an opportunity of looting, that's their only opportunity to get it. We need to be questioning that why. Why are people that poor? Why are people that broke? Why are people that that food insecure, that clothing insecure, that they feel like they're only shot, that they are shooting their shot by walking through a broken glass window to get what they need. And then people want to talk about, well, there's plenty of people who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and got it on their own. Why can't they do that? Let me explain to you something about economics in America. And I'm so glad that as a child, I got an opportunity to spend time at PUSH where they taught me this, is that we must never forget that economics was the reason that black people were brought to this country. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Do you understand that? That's what we came to do. We came to do the agricultural work in the South and the textile work in the North. Now, if I right now, if I right now decided that I wanted to play Monopoly with you and for 400 rounds of playing Monopoly, I didn't allow you to have any money. I didn't allow you to have anything on the board. I didn't allow for you to have anything. And then we played another 50 rounds of Monopoly and everything that you gained and you earned while you were playing that round of Monopoly was taken from you. That was Tulsa. That was Rosewood. There are Those are places where we built black economic wealth, where we were self-sufficient, where we owned our stores, where we owned our property and they burned them to the ground. So that's 450 years. 
So for 400 rounds of Monopoly, you don't get to play at all. Not only do you not get to play, you have to play on the behalf of the person that you're playing against. You have to play and make money and earn wealth for them, and then you have to turn it over to them. So then for 50 years, you finally get a little bit and you're allowed to play. And every time that they don't like the way that you're playing or that you're catching up or that you're doing something to be self-sufficient, they burn your game. They burn your cards. They burn your Monopoly money. And then finally at the release and the onset of that, they allow you to play and they say, okay, now you catch up. Now at this point, the only way you're going to catch up in the game is if the person shares the wealth, correct? But what if every time you share the wealth, then there's psychological warfare against you to say, oh, you're an equal opportunity higher. So if I played 400 rounds of Monopoly with you and I had to play and give you every dime that I made, and then for 50 years, every time that I played, I, if you didn't like what I did, you got to burn it like they did in Tulsa and like they did in Rosewood. How can you win? How can you win? You can't win. The game is fixed. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. There is, Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have. That if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. And if the social contract is broken, why the f do I give a shit about burning the football hall of fame, about burning the target? You broke the contract when you killed us in the streets and didn't give up. You broke the contract when for 400 years we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contract when we built our wealth again on our own by our bootstraps in Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us. When we built it in Rosewood and you came in and you slaughtered us. You broke the contract, so your target. Your Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, it could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge.